Open loops. Do, do. Open loops. Open loops. Open loops. Open loops. You must listen to the open loops, a theme park for absurd beliefs and systems of integration between the mind and the creative spirit. Open loops. Remember me, ominous voice that strangely is the same voice of the host of this show. Right now, this is the voice of your unconscious mind is now tuned in to your favorite late night talk show for the shamelessly fringe. It's Open Loops with Greg Bornstein. Conversations that bend. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Open Loops. Greg Bornstein here. Cultural hypnotist. Looper. Curator of experience. Wow. Listen to that. That is a New York sound if I ever heard one. It is late, too, for that sound to be occurring. Wild. Talk about consciousness disruptor. I like when my consciousness gets disrupted. And I like disrupting your consciousness. Because the topics on this show, the topics that take us away from it all, magic, hypnosis, the paranormal, the supernatural, the conspiratorial, the glamorous, the glorious, the fantastical, the deep questions, who and what we really are, These are great topics, but the goal, of course, is to challenge your existing belief systems by sharing radically unique ideas designed to stimulate your unconscious mind and allow you to step into the highest version of yourself. Now, I'm always down for a good story, and ghost stories are fun, but when you have a researcher on your show... Somebody who is a distinguished PhD, someone that has served for the DIA, someone who has been on the board of MUFON, one of the top UFO organizations in the world. You gotta get them on. And it turns out, she has quite a story to tell. Dr. Irina Scott She wrote a book called Beyond Haskagula about a abduction story that happened in Haskagula and a series of, of different sightings of UFOs around that time in the early 70s. Fascinating, fascinating story and also fascinating phenomena that occurred there, this unexplainable sound that the title of this episode hints at, really remarkable 
uh, I, I, I admire Dr. Irina Scott's dedication to the topic. I admire her ability to admit when she doesn't know something and to take an academic approach to the unexplainable. You will uh, you'll question the foundation of your reality after listening to this one. That's the goal. Now, speaking of aliens and whatnot, December 22nd, December 22nd in Australia, December 30, no, no, it's December 21st here, December 22nd in Australia, 10.30 a.m. New York time. This might sound weird, but we're going to work together to try to heal this planet. There was a incident, um, well, not even an incident, apparently a Hopi prophecy. The indigenous people of this earth say that we're in a cycle right now and consciousness is raising. We're trying to bring peace to the planet last year at the same time. That famous December 21st date, 2020, the Schumann Residence was unlike it had ever been before. What is the Schumann Residence? What is raising consciousness on this planet? Well, I did a full podcast about this that you can check out on the Open Loops YouTube channel. The link will be in the comments, as well as the Facebook page. Make sure you follow those, because sometimes we do broadcasts that haven't appeared on the air here. So, and they got visuals. You can see what I look like. Don't be too horrified. Yes, uh, it is... It, it's very interesting. Stephen and Evan Strong of Our Alien Ancestry, as well as Forgotten Origin, the Out of Australia Theory, they did a podcast with me last year, and they blew my mind showing me skulls of beings that certainly didn't seem human. Well... They're leading the ritual. We're going to be broadcasting the ceremony live on the Open Loops channel. But, hey, look, we just need some positivity in this world. So if we can get more people meditating and and sending positive vibes to the planet on this day, and that's going to save us all, why not at least try it at the very least? It'll be a fun meditation time. That is December 21st, 2021 at 10.30 a.m. One hour Listen to the indigenous people, pray for the planet, experience things. You can find the links in the show notes. Also, if you like open loops and you want to spread this message of peace and love, peace and love, well, make sure you follow this podcast as well as rate this show and leave a review. Even a few words will help get this kind of content out there. All right. You ready to go to Pascagoula, 1973, flying saucers, beaming up on ships? The story is very strange. Dr. Irina Scott's work, her entire life, has been in the realm of the strange. But the way she talks about it, there's no question something strange is going on here. Let's dig into the strange. Here we go. Today on Open Loops, Irina Scott 
We have a PhD here on the show, a, a, a qualified professional here. Um, the new book she, she wrote is called Beyond Pascagoula. The rest of the amazing story. And I'm so excited to have Irina on because in addition to being a distinguished academic, I mean, receiving a PhD from the University of Missouri, uh, doing postdoctoral research at Cornell, uh, being sought after, being employed by the Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, she is, among many other things, she's been on the board of directors for MUFON which is one of the biggest, most important UFO organizations going on in the U.S., uh, perhaps arguably the world, and just just a lot of... Uh, there are people that come on this show that are sometimes, you know, they, they're, they're UFO hobbyists. They're interested. Um, but Irina has really been studying this and dedicating her life in this story uh, about... Pascagoula. It's it's the abduction story that was forgotten often. Um, so I'm excited to dig into this. Irina, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, I am so fascinated by you and your story, uh, especially with regards to how somebody, I, I think there is this, there's an interesting class of people right now um, who who've been vindicated, I, I suppose, by um, the, the government coming out and saying, yeah, we have been studying UFOs, UAPs for years. Uh, and then you start looking through and you go, oh, well, you have John Mack. He was a distinguished uh, Harvard psychiatrist. He was talking about abduction experience. You, of course, have uh, the Hurtox, J.J. Desiree. They, they have PhDs, people in academia. Um, the idea that it is being studied by people in this profession and it's not just this fringe hobby kind of thing um, really makes it really makes it something I believe um, is important to look into out of curiosity how did did you did you even imagine in your experience going to school and all this stuff that you'd be involved in UFOs how did this come to you Irina well it came to me because I had experiences of my own but it wasn't something you'd talk about if you're in the field of science. But I finally um, came out of the UFO closet and talked about it. And what was that? It started when I was real young. I had several experiences with my sister. At that time, we'd never heard of UFOs or anything. We were really young kids. But then later, we had other UFO um, experiences. And then um, eventually, I started reading about UFOs and trying to figure things out. Right. Did you, when you were studying in school, uh, was this something that that you just tried to compartmentalize? Did you put it to the side? Did you secretly at night, you know, pull out these books and, and try to hide it away from the other scientists? I mean, what was your experience really getting comfortable with these experiences and uh, starting to dig into the paperwork? Uh, it was uh, late in my career. <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, I didn't go around talking about it for a long time. And sometimes people at work would find out that I was a little bit interested and tease me about it. So I kept my mouth shut. And I actually didn't spend a lot of time trying to figure it out until very late in my career. 
Yeah. That's very interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I, hmm, that's fascinating, too. It, w what's interesting is that I, I think there are a lot of separate camps on this. There's some people that stay in the pure unidentified flying objects field. They just go, yeah, there are these things in the sky. Um, it's probably technology that we don't know about. We, we don't know what it is. Um, but they don't go to the place of abductions. They, that, that is a whole nother level to, to start talking about beaming up on ships and, and the actual experience encountering, uh, extraterrestrials. I mean, that's, that's a whole nother level. T talk to me about this. Um, what, what your experience as a little girl was that at all related to anything that has to do with the the Pascagoula incident, or um, did that come later in your journey? Well, later, um, yeah, it came later. Um, later, um, I was studying for my PhD in Missouri, and my mother was in Ohio, and right. one night she gave me this call and said, did you hear a noise? And I teased her a lot about it and told her she was crazy that they were many miles away and everything. And then several days later, she called and said that there was a huge UFO flap going on in Ohio and that people were hiding in their um, houses at night and keeping their kids in and all kinds of things. And she was a skeptic, so it seemed weird for me. But right. later, later, um, I was working at Ohio State University and they had a newspaper room and I decided to go look um, if I could find that sound she was talking about. And I had, I had no idea when she called me or anything else. And I thought I'd never find it in millions and millions of papers there, but I did. I mean, I had a, a you know, remote idea and pulled out a paper close to when I guessed and I found it. <clears throat> but the um, sound had been the same time as the, Pascagoula abduction. And that's how I got into both up into it that way. And then because I didn't work on the sound, trying to figure that out. But um, oh, later I published books with uh, Philip Mantle Flying Disc Press. And he wanted somebody in the United States to interview people in Pascagoula. And so he asked me to do it, and I was happy to because I was interested in everything. So that's the other thing that got me into it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very fascinating. And for those that don't know, I mean, I, I'm not even sure I know. What is, what is a UFO flap? It's when there's a sudden increase in sightings. Things will be going along here and there. You know, somebody reports a UFO. A flap is when a whole lot of people see them and report them all at once. And then the, it, it, it's also called a UFO wave. It, it, uh, there'll just be a, you know, a standard amount of so many UFOs and suddenly there's a whole lot of reports and then it'll go back to normal. Yeah, very interesting. Um, and I love, first of all, that your book is called Beyond Pascagoula because that means that there's, I mean, we're, we're, we'll have to talk about the incident and we're gonna have to ha talk about what, what you've discovered in addition to it. Um, I, I'm not too familiar with this incident, um, so I, I'm very curious. Can you give kind of an overall view of uh, what actually happened? Yeah, it's one of the best known. Um, and I think it's probably the best documented now due to the work of Philip Mantle. And 
um, others. Um, it started out with two shipyard workers, um, Calvin Parker, who was a young teenager, and Charles Hickson, about in his 40s. And they were family friends. The younger man was a friend of the, his father was a friend of the older man and vice versa. They were, um, after a day of work, they were down in Pascagoula, which is the river and it goes into the Gulf of Mexico um, in Mississippi. They decided to go fishing after a day of work. They were just normal people. They weren't, you know, weirdo UFO people or anything like that. <coughs> They went to a couple places fishing and didn't get anything. And so finally they decided to go to this other place. And it was marked no trespassing. And the younger man was driving his new car and he was worried that the police might get him uh, because there was no trespassing. The older man said, oh, he fishes there all the time. There's no problem. And so they walked to, out to the um, pier and then started fishing from the pier. Well, they saw blue lights and the younger man told the older man, they thought they were police. And the younger man told the older man that he could go to jail because it was his fault and it wasn't his, you know, it wasn't the younger man's fault. But anyway, it turned out to be a lot worse than police because this um, object came <coughs> and um, it sort of floated. It was about two feet off the ground and came and it wasn't the police, it was uh, an object. And there was suddenly there's a whole lot of bright light coming out of it. And then these things came out and two of them grabbed Charles and one of them grabbed uh, Calvin. And at that time they would try to fight but they couldn't because they just suddenly became like they were paralyzed. They were conscious, but they couldn't move. And they were taken inside the object and they didn't see each other when that happened. And um, uh, it was like they, they gave the impression of scanning the people like something had come out from the ceiling and circle them and things like that. And then they returned them to the pier and um, Calvin was just standing there stiff with his hands up in the air and um, Charles tried to bring him out of his um, state he was in. And then the thing disappeared, or I guess it flew away. Well, they had been abducted and they um, uh, were terrified, obviously. And um, at first they said, we're not gonna tell anybody because you know they'd get teased and harassed, especially if you're a shipyard worker, you can imagine yeah. how you get harassed. But then the older man, he had been in the army, had been um, life and death situations and things, and he thought it should be reported. The younger man never wanted it reported, and he said, don't say anything. But the older man tried um, the Air Force Base and they said they don't collect UFO sightings. And so he called the um, sheriff's office and um, the sheriff's office, I, got, I talked to one of the uh, members, 
members of the sheriff's office that was off from there and just heard the report. And <laughs> the report right. was picked up two drunks that thought they'd been abducted by a UFO. And it was, you know, it sounded pretty weird. Right. But, um, Hickson called and he said, I know you won't believe this, but we've been abducted by a UFO. But the police were interested and came out and got them and they went to the police department. And they separated them. They did a good job here. They separated the two and interviewed them separately. And then they put them in a room together with another person to interview them. And then the other person left. And what they didn't know was is that there was a tape hidden tape recorder in with them. And the police were trying to find out if they were hoaxing. And so, you know, they thought if this man, if this police guy left, and left him alone, then they'd be laughing about how they put something over on him and everything else. Well, instead, they weren't laughing or anything. They were terrified and just beside themselves. Um, and so after they, the police collected the tape, well, they believed him. And um, this was one abduction that was seen by two people. And it was reported immediately. So the investigators got there real fast. Wow. This is uh, <laughs> this is quite an incident. My gosh. Uh, what is this? So why why do you think it's I mean, why, why Betty and Barney Hill versus this incident? Why is that more popular? Well, I think it was um, that Betty and Barney Hill was the first one reported. And so right. it made a lot of news. And they always, everybody compared theirs to that. Um, in this case, it made a lot of news too, all over the world. Yeah. But then after several years, it sort of died down. But it was, you know, it was one of the top ones, though. It's always been considered a top abduction account. Yeah, yeah. Now, is there, I mean, in your mind, I'm curious because there are a lot of people out there that uh, have said, oh, I've been abducted by aliens. I've 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 been contacted or they've come in my room. You know, they have the contactees. You have the abductees, all that stuff. Uh, in your experience in research, Irina, what makes a good abduction? How do you know that this is this is an incident worth discussing versus, say, others? I don't know because I don't understand abductions, but in this case, uh, there were a lot of other observations of UFOs that night in the same place, Pascagoula, and the police said that there were um, 50 reports of other from other people and um, that uh, were real reports and also a lot of reports that weren't formal reports. So. Apparently, they weren't the only ones that saw something. Yeah, so that's interesting, and I and I'm really trying to you know get into the the details of this field. Um, you say you don't know that much about abductions, and I, I and that makes sense to me. I mean, you're taking a scientific approach to UFO phenomena. That's what you've done. That's what you publish papers on. Is that really is that the distinction between? Uh, your work as an academic versus somebody that, um, 
I don't know. <laughs> I guess someone like me that that interviews abductees and tries to figure out what's going on. I mean, do you is that just something as someone that comes from a scientific background? You go, look, I have to draw a line between the personal experience of people and what is actually what we can see in the sky, what the reports are. Um, yeah, I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the the integrity of the kind of research you're doing and and sort of where you draw those boundaries. Well, I just don't understand abductions at all. And in some ways, I think maybe they're something projected into people's mind. That's just something I consider. Uh, uh, you know, um, and uh, I think lots of people are sincere, but I don't yeah. understand the thing at all. Wow. So this is interesting. Very interesting. Um, and is there, I mean, I, I, hmm, I, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what is, what is it about this Pascagoula case then that, made you go, there's a lot more here to dig into? Well, um, one thing that interested me was the sound. And right. um, I was a lot more interested in the sound than the rest of it for a long time. I was just studying the sound, but it, the sound was pretty weird. And it was something scientific that you can sort of sink your teeth into. Um, it was might have been the in extent, it might have been the largest sound recorded except for the Krakatoa volcano explosion. It was huge. It covered from the middle of the United States to the coast, to Atlantic coast. And um, it was reported right across the country. And there, it was definitely there because it was recorded on two seismographs. Um, and um, when I started just studying the sound, I uh, was submitting a paper to a peer-reviewed scientific journal and the, the state of Ohio seismologist helped me with it, helped me find seismology stations and things like that. And so I had published it and said, this was a sound that was heard <laughs> over a wide area, but nobody knew what caused it. Right. And then, it, usually they say scientists were uh, would be debunkers. Well, I got a lot of help from scientists. Um, but then several years later, I published in the MUFON Journal, which is a uh, UFO magazine. And then a debunker uh, debunked what I did. And I debunked the debunker back, but I really didn't have too much to go on. And he um, said it was this particular type of airplane that SR-71 right. flying over that caused a sonic boom. Well, um, there was information on the, where the airplane was, but I didn't know too much about sonic booms. But since then, um, NASA has published a lot of information about sonic booms and how high the airplane should be, how wide the sonic boom would be from a certain airplane to a certain height and all that sort of thing. And then I, um, so in my book, I debunk my <laughs> debunker a lot more because I could say how, um, where the sonic boom from this airplane should have been. And that wasn't where the sound was heard. It was heard a long ways away across the country. And so I debunked away on that. And I had, you know, scientific ammunition to 
um, say that. Did this person get back to you at all, or or did you win? Well, I don't know. I debunked him back in the uh, magazine. Nobody ever said anything, so I didn't bother. Yeah, that's a win to me, Irina. Oh, okay. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I ne- I didn't get debunked, 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 or anything. Yeah. No, I appreciate. You know the way you the way you approach this topic is very, very, uh, very professional. Very, you know, you're not you're not a sensationalist at all. You're really evidence based when it comes to a topic that, well, it's in the name, right? It defies explanation and and often stimulates the imaginations of people um, to to perhaps, like you said, project other things onto it. Um, it's, it's a very thin line. It's a very thin line um, for people. And I'm curious how you were able to maintain that over all these years, um, especially even when I know you have a chapter on your book on the beings. Um, do you go into that at all? Do you talk about who may have been in the ship or or any even any extraterrestrials themselves? Yeah, this um, the Pasagula abduction report was different from most because um, usually people describe the aliens as often they're the gray type that are slender and short and um, walk and have big heads and big eyes. There's other ones like there's reptilians and there's Nordics and all kinds of things. But these for the for this were unique. I don't think anybody reported anything like them. They weren't like the usual slender types. They were sort of pudgy. They were um, short. They were wrinkled. And where a person's head has projections like the ears and the nose, they kind of had projections, but they were kind of like carrots or something sticking out of their heads where the ears and nose would be. Interesting. And, um, they did, it, it was obvious they didn't, if they, you know, if they were hoaxing, they'd probably look up and see what aliens look like and describe them that way. But the way they described it was quite a bit different from the, what the, nor- the normal description Interesting. Has that ever been? Is that the one incident of, of beings like that, or or has anybody else described them in other parts of the world? I think afterwards, somebody else described them that way. A kid told his parents about um, talking to these things that were like that. Um, the Charles and Calvin thought they might have been robots if they behaved in a mechanical manner oh interesting interesting yeah i mean there definitely is this uh i don't know where you where you stand on this but there's theories that they're the ones that come from outer space and then they're the ones that come from the U.S. government. Government, the government has uh, extra. Tur- they don't have uh, extra. Well, they might. Uh, they have flying saucers. They have technology that they sometimes test. Um, I mean, do you have any opinions on that? Thoughts on whether whether we actually have access to flying saucers versus where these come from? It's my opinion that if any country had access to UFOs, that they would take over the world. 
I, I mean, I don't right. know, maybe they wouldn't, but that's just a guess. <laughs> yeah. So you are of the, these are definitely, well, not definitely, but if anything, they're coming from outer space. Well, no, I don't think there's any information at all on where they're coming from. That's a general idea. It's from E.T., but I just don't know. Um, I appreciate that. I appreciate you not <laughs> the limits. Yeah, I mean, do you want to know? Is that part of your, uh, by the end of your you know, journey in this research, is there an answer that you would like to have through all this? No, I'd just like to find out. Um, anything I could, and I think the government ought to do a serious study, and it seems to affect enough people that um, they sh certainly should be looking into it. I mean, it's, it's been affecting people for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, let's get back to the sound. I, I'm very curious. Can can people listen to the sound anywhere? Is it out there? or? No, I don't think so. I don't know of any recordings. Um, it was something totally unexpected. Yeah. And, um, there were, but it made newspapers all across the country because it was loud and people thought their houses were exploding and things like that. They sent fire departments out and stuff. It started in um, Iowa and about 820 EST and traveled to the coast at about before nine. And due to its being um, recorded by two seismographs, I could calculate its speed between these two seismographs. Um, and um, it was just unexpected. It never happened again that anybody knows about. And it covered a whole wide area. Yeah. And someplace it was... Uh, breaking windows and things like that it was so intense wow 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 uh that is very intense have there ever been any similar sounds like this that ever made the news yeah there's been sonic booms from um jet airplanes and things but nothing ever covered that amount of territory that's interesting that is very interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we talk about what people see in the skies, but but these other sensations. Uh, is that what you mean by, I, I've heard this term, USO versus UFO? Yeah, that was another part of the um, Pascagoula event. The USO is unidentified submerged object, and uh, Pascagoula made the news for two reasons. One was the abduction really made the news all over the world with that because it was reported so soon afterwards and had a lot of top people investigating stuff. But the other was about a couple, it was several weeks later and there was a sighting of a uh, submerged object and this made the news too. And it was very close to where the abduction had been. <clears throat> interesting, interesting, Irina. Wow. Um, talk to me about this. I'm curious. Are these um, people that were involved in this, um, and, and what I mean by the people is our <laughs> uh, two main subjects, uh, Charles and Calvin, when did, when, what happened to them? What's their story? Well, Charles was brave about it and he wanted to 
you know, he thought it should be reported, and he did, and he talked about it. Calvin didn't want to talk about it at all. He just wanted to shut up, and he told Charles that, tell him that, tell the press that he fainted and he didn't remember a thing. And so he didn't talk about it for about <laughs> 50 years. Wow. Um, and just the, the last several years, he started talking about it. But, you know, lots of people, they say people uh, report UFOs and just make up the story because they want to be famous. Well, he didn't want to be famous or anything. He just didn't say a word about it for quite a few years. Right. And, and and were there any in in your research? Did you talk to anybody that knew them directly, family, friends? Well, one person that knew him real well. I um, interviewed was uh, Calvin's wife, and they were engaged when this happened. And um, so she went through the whole thing with him. And um, I guess somebody told her, suggested to her that it might be hesitant on getting married to him and things. And he just didn't want the fame or anything. And she had a total trust in him and they got married just like, you know, like nothing had happened. Um, and he had a nervous breakdown right afterwards. I mean, he was just totally shook up by it just in like, um, he like post-traumatic stress or something. And he went through his life and told, you know, hit it so that people wouldn't know it. Um, and so um, one time, just a few years ago, they went to a funeral and Calvin wrote his actual name in the funeral, um, you know, the book. Right. And he had tried to hide all his years. Well, people came up and were interested. And instead of harassing him like they expected, they were interested and concerned about how he was and how everything happened. and whether he was okay and things like that, which was a different attitude than he expected. And so his wife thought, well, it's time to say something about it because he'd been clammed up all these years. And then uh, Philip Mann also found out about it and he contacted um, uh, Calvin. And um, they, can, they talked to him and you know, he trusted them and everything. They weren't, you know, they were good people. And he finally decided to talk about it. But this was in about 2017 or 18. And that happened in 1973. So he hadn't talked about it at all for all that time. Yeah. What do you, um, when, when somebody spends that long holding something inside, I mean... Obviously, there's a lot of science that even within 10 minutes, sometimes memories get distorted. Uh, wh what do you have to do to make sure that you are getting the most detailed but accurate version of this firsthand experience? Well, that was one thing that was lucky about this. And one thing that makes it good is, is that uh, his partner reported right immediately what happened. And they also had the uh, mystery tape of them describing, you know, what happened uh, when they didn't know anybody was there listening. Um, and so this was published in newspapers right immediately afterwards. 
and they've always stuck to the same story. There hasn't been, you know, any change, but fortunately it was, you know, published immediately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm always interested, Irina, also in this, what, what, what happens when people get abducted. I mean, a lot of common things, you hear that the body numbs, you hear that they kind of go into this hypnagogic state. Um, sometimes you hear people after they've been abducted, they have new abilities, new, uh, they can become more empathetic, or they're able to heal people, psychic powers, stuff like that. Um, was there anything notable in this case with regards to, you mentioned that they, they were immobilized. Was there anything else that you find interesting about this particular abduction story? Well, normally when people say they're abduction, abducted, what they report is that they just sort of go numb or something, or the people, the beings wave their hand over their eyes or something and they don't feel anything. Well, in this case, they thought they'd been, they'd received shots and um, like when they were first grabbed, the natural impulse would be fight back as hard as you could, you know, bite and kick and everything you can think of. But they were immo immobilized immediately and um, they couldn't do anything. And Calvin said it was just like happiness or don't care that suddenly he was just distraught beyond anything. And then it was just like he didn't care, you know. It's like when you get an IV and they give you a, <laughs> something and yeah. You but theirs was different from the anesthetic that knocks you out back in those days because when people had operations, they were put out, you know, became unconscious. In this case, they were conscious and um, knew what was happening, could move their eyes, but otherwise they were immobilized. So it was like the type of um, conscious sedation they use now. Yes, yes, fascinating, very fascinating. Uh, now, I know that 1973 seemed to be seemed to be this wave of uh, UFO sightings and whatnot. Uh, what other? Tell tell us more about the flap and and what was going on around the world with regard to UFO sightings. There was just a sudden increase in sightings all over the world, um, just all kinds of sightings, other abductions, sightings of humanoid type people, I mean figures and things like that. That um, before that. Um, um, government had Project Blue Book and it had two predecessors, Project Sign and Project Grudge. And all together, it went from about 1947 to about 1969. And this was a common place for people to, um, to report UFOs to. So that, you know, they, um, if you had a UFO uh, event, you report and you felt like reporting it, you reported it to the government. So it was sort of like a consistent set of data. And in that data, they found flaps where there had been some increase and then decrease of UFO events. And due to the fact that the reports were going to the same place, they could compare them. After 1969, when Project Blue Book closed, well, you could report, there was no place to report it and if you did, there were just various places here and there, so you couldn't get a consistent 
set of data. But in 1973, there was such a huge wave of everybody seeing him that that was considered a flap. But since then, um, the data just isn't there in order to tell there's a flap going on or not. There might be a, like one here and then one there or something. But they didn't have good data to collect on that afterwards. But in 1973, in spite of the fact that Blue Book had closed, everybody thought that was a flap and, and the largest one that ever happened. Um, there were sightings all over the country and the world. Yes. What do we think was happening? I mean, there was there's often uh, associations with nuclear power. We, we hear that you see a lot of flying saucers uh, around uh, Pearl Harbor and, and looking, just looking into what, once it seems like there's potential that humans are going to destroy the earth, um, that's when, that's when UFOs start showing up. Uh, do you have any theories about why that time period? Well, there's a lot going on in that time period, such as Watergate and Spiro Agnew and um, yes. the oil crisis everything else but one thing that people didn't know too much about was the Yom compare compare war in um, the Middle East and um, at that time there was a DEFCON 3 alert which is an alert for an impending nuclear war but this it happened once before with the um, Cuban Missile Crisis when they thought there might be a nuclear war, and then this. But um, people didn't know necessarily about this because the um, DEF country alert wasn't publicized until just just a few years ago. So, But there was a possibility of nuclear war happening then with the Israel um, against the Arab countries, and the United States would have supported Israel and the Russia, the Arab countries, and there was a possibility of a nuclear war starting. So it was um, pretty dangerous. And it was interesting that there was a flap that time. Yeah. Also, I there was somebody that was interviewed way, way back. And I just had a little bit information about the interview. But I, um, the people um, are dead or not. <laughs> I can't contact them. But anyway. They said it was a show of force by the UFOs at the time when there might have been a nuclear war to try to <laughs> warn people to not do that. Yeah, right, right. Yes, very fascinating, very fascinating, this entire thing. Um, now, what do you think in terms of your research was the the most interesting new information or some of the, you know, obviously we want everybody to purchase this book. Um, very interesting topic beyond Pascagoula, the rest of the amazing story, which we're going to link to for everybody um, in the notes. So definitely pick that up. Uh, but is there anything there that you discovered that you had no idea you were going to get in your research? There were three things. Um, one was the other witnesses and a possible abduction by another witness of the uh, uh, Pascagoula. Another was is that there was fairly good data on the sound that I could get now, and also the NASA research, so that I could 
put actual mathematics to the information and scientifically explore it. The other thing, the third thing was the um, underwater, um, underwater submerged object. And um, there were 16 witnesses to that. This was at Pascagoula and it was a couple of weeks after, maybe three weeks after the um, abduction. But um, there were 16 witnesses on that and they're all dead except one. And I interviewed the one that's alive. But what happened was is that these uh, fishermen were net fishing in the Pascagoula River and they saw this object underwater. Um, they didn't know what it was. And I, the man I talked to was 16 at the time with his father. And he said his father had a reel on the oar and he hit it and it sounded like something metallic. And so the other fishermen came around and they, um, more boats and different types of boats and things. And they tried to figure out what it was and hit at it and things. And so he and his father went back to get the Coast Guard, you know, the Navy and the Coast Guard to see for help. And two Coast Guard officers also came out to look at it and they saw it too. And the thing would, if it'd be lit, but if they bothered it a lot, like trying to hit it or something, it would disappear. And then it might be appear someplace else. And sometimes the light would be very, very bright and sometimes it would be dimmer. And he thought the light came from underneath it. Um, and one of the Coast Guard people reported that um, when they held an oar over it, that it was like x-rays, that it didn't cast a shadow. The rays seemed, the light seemed to go right through it, which is very, very strange. And somebody else reported that when they got close to it, their engine cut off of their boat. And I don't know who that was, but, um, that was thoroughly researched. The Coast Guard took it quite seriously and sent big people to interview them. Um, and another reason that was taken seriously was because in the Pascagoula area, there was a nuclear um, facility, which they didn't want people to know about. There was also Kessler Air Force Base, which was a top Air Force base. And um, the shipbuilding facility, which was one of the top shipbuildings for the Navy. And they were about to um, publicize a big new ship. And so there was a lot that the Navy was concerned about on that. And they took it very seriously. And I said in my book that um, the abduction, if the Navy took that seriously, the abduction should have been taken seriously too, because it was closer to all the facilities than the Navy. Um, yeah. The, the underwater event. Yes, yes. That is interesting. I, I feel that uh, we don't hear, I mean, I, I suppose the the Tic Tac is, has this water component to it, but um, it's often in the sky. Uh, where, where are, I mean, have you discovered more USOs and, and other water-related uh, unexplained phenomena over the years? Yeah, well, I think the Navy over the years has taken the uh, UFO, you know, underwater submerged objects a lot more seriously than the Air Force did the flying objects. For some reason, now um, the Tic Tac and the uh, Nimitz and Princeton and everything 
are in the news, but that's mainly um, Navy data. And so I think even today, the reason people are taking it more seriously is from the Navy, um, seriously reporting events. Yeah. This is what I'm wondering about your story, uh, Dr. Irina Scott, in, in terms of, uh, you know, you've been involved in this for a while. Um, what <laughs> I feel that you must. I you've put out a lot about what you do know, but but I'm wondering about, you know, what what you haven't told us or at least um you know the, the top secret programs you may have been involved in i mean you don't have to obviously i i want you to stay alive and healthy um but <laughs> i am curious i mean is there it, how much more is there than what you're even allowed to tell us currently well from my own experience working with the dia uh i one of the sections i worked under was air order of battle and that was identifying aircraft uh, by satellite photography. And so I think the DIA keeps track of any type of um, military aircraft anywhere in the world by satellite photography. And I didn't have the uh, security clearance for it or anything. I had a real high security clearance for that type of work. But I suspected way back then that um, they probably knew a lot more about UFOs than anybody said. And now the DIA is um, that ATIP program that was yes. under the DIA. And I suspected back, <laughs> back then that they knew a lot about it. And I still think that there's places in the government that know about it. I don't think the whole government does or anything like that, but I think there's highly secured compartmented um, information about UFOs someplace yes yes yeah even i mean you you worked at wright patterson air force base i mean wright patterson is associated with this very much associated with ufos and extraterrestrials uh, that is huh, it, it it just makes me wonder it makes me wonder um if they're well if we're really going to have disclosure do you even believe in disclosure i mean what what, what do you think about that whole thing that 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 one day where they're going to just reveal all these files to us well i thought i think they ought to disclose everything because it concerns everybody i mean if you're like somebody way off in australia in the middle of nowhere and you have a ufo experience what well, would concern you it concerns lots of people and it seems to me like the government's keeping quiet. And also, if you don't know whether these are friends or foes or anything else, or even what they are. And, you know, there's lots of genius in the world that might be starting to figure this out if they would um, say there's something there. And they finally said there's something there. But that's all it said. I mean, I think that's a lot better than not saying nothing, though. Yeah, yeah. What about these people that you, uh, the scientists that you went to school with that you would have never brought up your incidents with? I mean, is there anybody that you still keep in contact with from your studies and university that 
uh, either thinks, okay, well, Irina's off the deep end now, or they're going, wow, how interesting uh, that you went into this field. I mean, do they, do, do you know anybody from your, from your mainstream scientific days that knows you do this anymore? Um, I got harassed more by my family and some of them were in, were in scientific jobs. And they said, well, you know, you can't go faster than the speed of light, so nobody's hearing all that. Well, I think maybe they're a little bit more, um, since the government sort of is taking it seriously and it's been on, you know, 60 minutes and things, they're taking it a little more, instead of just harassing, uh, yeah, taking yeah. it possibly something could be happening. Yes, yes. I Hey, I'm glad that your work is, uh, you know, after all these years, people that were doing this are on the, the well, you're ahead of the curb in a lot of ways. I mean, really, this is, um, I, I don't think people even understand how long MUFON has been around and, uh, you know, SETI, all that stuff. Um, now, here's what I also want to know. Uh, you have several theories in your book about UFO waves. Um, why, uh, is this something that interests you? I mean, are you, are you, would this be something like if someone said to you right now, Irina, here's the answer. Here's why people see them all. Um, would, would that be, <laughs> would that be something that said, okay, great. I've, I've studied this a lifetime. Now I know the answer. Um, what, what, what draws you to that question? If anything, well, what drew me was is that uh, this event was part of a huge, huge wave. And so I thought I should add some background on waves uh, just for comparison information. And also because I think the standard idea of a UFO wave is, is that somebody reports a UFO and then it gets a newspaper and then everybody else says, oh, yeah, I saw it too. Like they're influenced by um, somebody reporting it. Well, I don't think that's true because they've done studies of, and this was more or less an academic study that I reported on, um, of UFO waves and where you expect a big wave, you don't necessarily get it. Um, for example, when the movies E.T. and Close Encounters came out, you'd expect a wave, but there wasn't. And um, Right. Sputnik, the first Sputnik went up, everybody was out watching, you'd expect a big wave, but there wasn't. And so this was not, you know, there were a lot of theories to start with it. When Mars was close, there was a wave and all that. Well, that none of that panned out. And they really don't know what causes the wave. It seems to be something external instead of something that people just feed off the news and get. But they don't know what causes them. Yeah. Yeah, you have a whole section in there that's uh, very interesting theories, um, including this new one that intrigues me, which is the idea that we might be – this could be a monitor from another solar system. Uh, what do you mean by monitor? Well, um, I think they just had the mathematics to figure this out. Usually they see a space object and, you know, it's a meteor or a – asteroid or something like that. But since then, um, I think, it, I forget, 19, 2018 or something, this Amua, Amua, however you pronounce it, went through. And they calculated that this was from outside our solar system. It's something that 
came through our solar system and came and left. And some um, Harvard astronomers have said, well, this might be a monitor, you know, something to watch our solar system. I mean, nobody knows. But um, since then, I was just saying that maybe some of the waves are connected. They did back in the time of the waves. They didn't know. They didn't have the mathematics to calculate, you know, whether something came from out of our solar system. But maybe some of the waves had something to do with that. And um, so I was, especially with the noise, saying maybe something happened um, from out of our solar system back in 1973. That's just a theory, though. I don't have any <laughs> um, yeah. postulating that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in your work out, uh, over all these years, let's say somebody gave you, um, you know, millions of dollars and said, Irina, you've had a lot of theories. We've read all your other books, which, by the way, you have to check out. I mean, Irina's written a lot of books on this topic, including UFOs and cover-ups. I mean, j just very interesting stuff. Um, but if, if someone were to say, okay, here's millions of dollars, one of your theories, one of your hypotheses about this, we are going to investigate. We're going to get an answer about this so we know what is going on. Do, do you have an answer? Where where would you put that money in terms of UFO research? Boy, that's a hard question. I don't know. I'd have to think about it a lot more before I get an answer. Um, I think... <laughs> I think one thing that would be good with the money would be to publicize, try to find out what the government knows and get that out in the open yes. so that people discuss it and then try to get the actual information. I imagine the government probably has more information. They may not know what UFOs are either, but they probably have good photography and things like that to get that information out and get, you know, the information out to people and then um, if there's, have them look at the evidence and try to get people that are scholarly and, um, and try to get a variety of people though, to examine the evidence and come up with theories and, you know, scientifically to um, see if there's um, like that sound, see if there's a cause, if they can find a cause or what caused it and that sort of thing. But it might be that UFOs have mind control properties. And in that case, you'd need people that could figure that could figure that out too. It, it seems like it'd be a very vast um, thing. And I hadn't thought about that. Um, I better think about it, though. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. I mean, who knows? Well, let, let's hope uh, someone reads this book and then all of a sudden they go, yes, let's give her all this money. Um, at the very least, though, we can bribe. Uh, we can bribe somebody in the government to give us the answers here. I mean, I, I'm not even sure who has all of that. Um, that said, though, I would be curious about... Um, <laughs> this mind control stuff for sure. Um, but when you say mind control, uh, what other went beyond? Well, beyond beyond uh, Pascagoula. Where where does mind control show up in UFOs? I'm very curious. 
I'll come back to that in a second. I will answer your 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 last question in a little bit more detail. There have been some scientific studies of UFOs, and one was done by um, Dr. Harley Rutledge in uh, Missouri, and this was a 1973 flap. He was a physics professor, the head of the Department of Southern uh, Missouri University, I think, and um, he was going to go out, he heard UFO reports, and he was going to go out and take his instruments and scientists and just solve the problem of UFOs in a week or two and report it. So he did. And he never found the, um, he didn't solve it, but he fit late after his investigation, he thought they were real. And what he did was set up a field study. It, in that case, there was a flat going on at that time with a whole lot of UFO sightings. Well, he set up a field study where they had um, observation stations and things like that. And they were, they could find out what, you know, if there were airplanes there or, you know, what the, all the identified objects were. And then they studied the unidentified objects. And he did a good, real good study. He didn't publish it for a long time because he was probably scared to, but he finally published it project identification. But that was a scientific study where they um, could try to identify the actual um, unidentified objects. Another similar idea, I worked at Battelle. Battelle did a, um, a, a top secret study that a whistleblower blower blew on about UFOs. And one of their ideas was the same thing to set up a study area, um, be able to identify the all the known aircraft. And even, um, this is a little bit on the shady side, but even maybe set up some pyrotechnics and things and see what people report. And then look for the truly unidentified objects. And that would be a scientific way to study it too. So I think there are um, scientific ways that just haven't been done. Um, so, I mean, that you said the money, and I didn't think at first, but I was thinking of that. And that those were two good um, studies. Yeah. With the mind control, though, I think it would be very difficult to understand UFOs because I think they can, I mean, we're probably little simple things. And they can probably control our minds. Maybe. What makes you say that based on what you've discovered? Well, Harley Rutledge, he said that the um, effects may be subtle and that some of the sightings he thought were like they picked up people's thoughts, like um, somebody might think about him and they might um, blink or something like that. Um, I just had some of my own experience made me think there was mind control involved. And the very first sighting event my sister and I had when we were kids was um, we'd never heard of UFOs or aliens or anything. We were young and in an old farm and our only media was a radio. And we hadn't heard of any of that stuff. She was about four and I was about six. We were uh, sleeping in our bedrooms on two sides of the room one night, and I woke up, and this thing was flying around the room. 
Um, wow. It looked like a real Tic Tac. I mean, what you'd call Tic Tac now. It looked like a cough drop or something. Right. It would, um, uh, looked like the side of the color of hot iron. And it was flying around. And sometimes it get close to us. And I, after a while, I noticed that it knew where things were. The room was dark. And there was no storm or anything going outside. Um, it was in a farmhouse, so there weren't, there wasn't traffic on the road or anything, and it didn't blink. And it just flew around, but it it would turn before it got to a wall. It avoid the furniture and stuff like it could see, and this seemed pretty strange to me. And um, after a while, it flew up to the ceiling, but it turned before it got to the ceiling because it didn't seem to bump into anything. And then the walls of the room, it was an attic room, and the walls came together at the top, about three feet apart from each other. And there was a chandelier in the middle, which was turned off. And um, it flew from the south end of the room to the chandelier. And it didn't feel its way around. It seemed to know where the chandelier was and the walls were. And it started circling between the chandeliers and the wall, the chandelier and the walls. And then it came down a spiral. Well, at that time, um, my sister and I just began to scream and we were just terrified. We ran out of the uh, room and fell down the stairs and we couldn't get the door open. And finally we, um, we ran to our parents and shrieking and they didn't believe us, but we hadn't been communicating with each other. I mean, I just woke up and this thing was in the room. I guess she did too at about the same time. She sort of knew I was awake, but I didn't know she was awake, but we both woke up at the same time. And then we both became terrified at the same time. And the room was closed. Both doors were closed and the window was screened. So we don't know how the thing got in, but it was like mind control because this looked like a little inanimate thing. Yeah. Know its way around. And then we had both woke up at about the same time and with no idea on how it got in or anything. And then suddenly just became terrified at the same time, like something was affecting our minds. But we both saw the same thing holy moly uh whoa someone needs to do research into this incident i mean i'm sure you have or that that's part of what your work has been but uh then once stuff gets into a bedroom like that and and had such a profound effect on people uh it's i mean i i have no idea and you hear stories about this i mean if you how many other similar stories have you heard to that over the years? Well, I didn't know what it was for years and years and years. And I read this book by Jenny Randall's called Char Star Children. And she, back, uh, she said that sometimes children see um, uh, objects or orbs in their bedroom. And then the same people later will see UFOs and have repeat sightings and it, like it's a trend. Well, usually it happens to one person, but my sister <laughs> had the childhood sighting and then another sighting together when we were adults. And we had also had other sightings. So we sort of fit that trend. And so at that time I thought, well, you know, it happens to other people, but in this case, there was still an element of uh, mind control because we both woke up at the same time. We both got scared at the same time, like something was affecting our minds and we had another witness both of us you know each other so we knew it, you know usually 
if it's one person, they'd say you're dreaming or you imagining it. Well, two of us had the same thing happen. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's uh, when did, oh, that's the thing. It's something's going on out here with this stuff. I'm telling you. I mean, you're telling me. Um, but but yeah, this is. I mean, it's very fascinating work that you're doing. Uh, first of all, everybody, again, um. You have to check out this book. Uh, it is well, it's available on Amazon, um, and I we're going to link to your website as well so you can learn about Irina Scott's other works. Uh, the book is called Beyond Pascagoula, The Rest of the Amazing Story. Um, now that you've done this... I mean, first of all, I know you're. The other thing is that you're you're going to be at a big conference in Las Vegas in March. Can you speak a little bit about that? The UFO Mega Conference in Las Vegas um, at Bally's Hotel. It starts March the nineteenth until the twenty seventh. So I'll be speaking there and signing books and things like that, answering questions. Do you have any other? future projects? I mean, what's what's the next research project for you about this topic? Well, in um, Beyond Pascagoula, there were a number of other witnesses that might have seen the abduction and might have even been abducted at the same time um, that are talking about it now. Um, also, with Philip Mantle, I'm, we're working on a book, uh, still more witnesses around Pascagoula and um so that may be coming out next year wow so there's there is going to be a beyond beyond yeah beyond 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 <laughs> <laughs> amazing amazing well such a fascinating incident uh and and such interesting work i mean i appreciate you you sharing your story i appreciate you sharing this story uh dr irena mccammon scott uh author of beyond pascagoula the rest of the amazing story thank you so much for coming on well thank you very much for having me and asking very interesting questions and making comments <laughs> i hey I, I i i likewise appreciate you being as open as you are and uh, i hope that you discover the answers you're looking for i really do well i hope i do too i hope everybody does <laughs> yes awesome hey thanks again irena thank you dr Irene Scott, thank you so much for coming on. I want to thank Ronnie McGilvery for the theme music. I want to thank Zero Boy for the pre-theme music. Come to that event on the 21st of December. We need to wake this planet up even more. Though, Earth might be flat. So I guess give it a slight tilt, maybe? If I put together a complete understanding of the show, if I were to take everybody who's been on here and put together a complete theory of the universe, I... Okay. Everybody pray for me up till December 22nd. Then we'll let Earth do the rest. I love you all. Take care.